Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Good morning, Bucknutters. It is Sunday, December 6th, 2020. I am Dan Rubin. This is the Bucknuts Morning 5 on the weekend. I am joined by the people's champ, Matt Baxendell, as we bask in the glow of Ohio State's 52-12 win in East Lansing over Sparty. Bax, how goes it on a Sunday? Well, after Ohio State finally put together what appeared to be a much more complete performance, I would say certainly for the first time, uh, this entire season, really. Uh, I, I think we're all probably in a little happier mood than we've been on, on some of these Sundays where we've been uh, more than a little nonplussed about the way things went in the second half of the games on defense. So uh, this is the happiest Sunday I've had so far after an OSU game this year. If you had used the Bucknuts roundtable, the staff prediction was 46 to 18. It finished 52 to 12. So you'd have nailed the total exactly. You'd have had the over and the Buckeyes. Let's talk about that, Bax. They did not let their foot off the gas. There was not the second half crumble. In light of the fact that they were playing with three non usual starter offensive linemen and their general depth was hit, what kind of statement do you think this makes for the rest of the country when Ohio State can do this with a limp? Well, I think this is a huge thing for Ohio State. This is the first time that you can really look at the, the, the roster and say, wow, they were missing a quarter of their scholarship players, and they still went out and won by 40 points. This is the kind of game that's a little bit more unimpeachable to criticism uh, that they've sort of been getting the last four or so games this year before this happened. The reality is they're missing three of their five starters on the offensive line, Four of the five were playing out of the, the normal position. Really, Wyatt Davis was the only guy playing on the offensive line in the spot he's been at all year. You're missing uh, Tough Borland on defense, who was essentially the quarterback. You're missing another starter in Josh Proctor. And then they went out and absolutely dominated. You cannot give enough credit to Justin Fields and this revamped offensive line for the way they played yesterday. Uh, I, I think you, it's not just that they played okay. They ran for 322 yards behind a makeshift second tier or third team even offensive line. If you're talking about the fact that Max Ray was actually on the third tier of tackles uh, before all this hit. So, you know, this is the kind of win that's going to easily allow the committee to say, yeah, that's the number four team and they're not dropping. There's no real debate at this point that Ohio State's going to fall out of the top four based on that performance yesterday. And really it was the first more complete performance that we've seen from them all year. Uh, even, even the way that the pass defense played, that's been our big concern is second half performances on defense, allowing a ton of passing yards. That Michigan State team came in averaging 233 pass yards a game. And that, if you take away the Indiana game uh, where they played Ohio State, Indiana is essentially averaging the same thing. 
And this Ohio State team held him to 180 pass yards and knocked out the starting quarterback. So I think this is a significant step in the right direction for Ohio State. So much hyperbole and praise has gone Justin Fields' way, though I think we should definitely carve out a minute to do the same here. Three plays yesterday on third down where the play completely broke down and he just kind of vamped and, and made the play. The play where he ran over dudes to get the extra yard, even though the penalty would have gotten it for him. The ability to deal with Harry Miller's middle reliever wild stuff. That might have been his overall best performance as a Buckeye. Your thoughts? Yeah, I would completely agree with that. Uh, not only did he bounce back from a rough game at Indiana, but the reality is that first drive was all Justin Fields. Uh, I mean, Harry Miller was he was spraying wildly. The, the joke I made in the bucket of bullets was that it was like the Joe Bowserman passing chart against Nebraska uh, way back when, seeing the, that ball everywhere. And you talked about some of the plays he made on that first drive, which to me is critical because getting seven points in that first drive essentially, to me, put a pin in Sparty real quick because that made it very crystal clear that Ohio State wasn't going to struggle offensively, even with all the switches. But there was one play where Miller snapped it like down low to, to Fields' left. It hit him in like the ankle, rolled like five yards to his left, and Fields just kind of runs over, casually picks it up, and then runs back the other way for like 10 yards for a first down. And I remember thinking, wow, if that play is going to work, there's, there, there, we're going to be fine today. Justin Fields, like, it seemed like every snap was like him catching it with his fingertips, letting it spin in midair, then grabbing it, and then trying to make a handoff or just running with it. And the touchdown on that, that drive, I remember when Master Teague was getting his, his big run reviewed. I'm sitting there thinking, please let this count because we really need this to get in because I don't know if I trust a snap from Harry Miller on the one-yard line right now. And thank goodness Justin Fields got that third down play in. Uh, that was like – there was a big running gift that went around like 10 years ago about what Ohio State's offense looked like in the last year of Jim Bowman where it was first down run, second down run, third down, and it was like the quarterback runs are like 87 different places. And that was how they would get a first down. And that was the Braxton Miller playbook, right? Where it was just, please let Braxton pull something out of his butt, right? Justin Fields pulled one out of his butt for that touchdown where he ended up jumping between four different guys and getting into the end zone. And that first drive was essentially like having a cheat code, right? It, it, he, was, he was overpowered on that drive because nothing he could do was wrong. And he kind of was that way the whole day. He was a guy who ran 60 yards downfield behind Trey Sermon to block a guy on a touchdown run. Justin Fields yesterday was incredible. That game, to me, solidifies him as the number two pick at worst in the NFL draft. Because in the NFL, there's going to be times where the pocket breaks down and the quarterback has to do something and improvise. And Fields showed how good he was at that. And it wasn't just get taking off and running. He got out of the pocket on numerous occasions and made a pass. And you went, wow. The first touchdown pass he threw to, to Garrett Wilson um, to make it 14 to nothing was one of those classic Fields plays where He's kind of running. You're worried that the play is breaking down, and you think he's throwing it away, and then it's a touchdown. This guy's incredible, and I think if he doesn't win the Heisman this year, the only reason is going to be because we don't play enough games for him to build up the stats that some voters want. But I'm certainly not ruling it out at this point either. Justin Fields is nothing short of amazing, and obviously he's the team's most valuable player. But I would venture to say yesterday he wouldn't have been the team's highest-rated player. That would be Drew Chrisman who had two of the greatest punts I have ever seen. One that would have rolled dead at the one. Chris Olave stopped it. 
and one from 74 yards out that basically rolled dead at the two. Yeah, it feels like that every time we go to Michigan State, there's a heck of a performance from him. Two years ago, it was the same way where the punts were just stopping inside the five left and right. I think he put like eight or something or seven or something that game inside the 10. So I guess maybe he should have gone to school there because the way he hits the ball in that stadium is amazing. But that one where the, that, that Olave didn't even need to touch on the one-yard line was just impeccable. And that one directly led to the Haskell-Garrett interception in the end zone that put OSU up, I think, 28 nothing at that point. Look, when you get special teams like that, I mean, it really helps. And, we, and in the modern day of football, people like to ignore the field position game just because offenses have become more explosive than they were 15 years ago. But the truth is, when you have a weapon like that, I mean, you, you totally change the way the game is played. And if you're playing against a superior opponent, like a team like an Alabama or a Clemson, you need that weapon. So, you know, that, that was really confidence, confidence inspiring to see out of Crispin, who's been a little up and down this season. And I, I, I honestly think yesterday was a good day for Ohio State on special teams. I mean, they, they, they covered for the most part well. There was one kickoff return outside the 35, and that was it. Um, Blake Hellboyle was back as, as the place kicker, and that was good to see him getting back healthy. And then, of course, the way that Drew Christman was hitting the ball. You know, special teams is really important. What did Jim Trestle always say? The punt is the most important play in football. And you're starting to see this team come together a little bit more. Remember, we've only played five games. Normally, this would be like the first weekend of October would be where we're at on the schedule. And we wouldn't have played this many, you know, decent-level teams. There would have been a lot of, you know, Bowling Greens and Akron's and maybe one real game. And maybe this would have been the Big Ten kickoff for the – uh, conference games. So we're at a different point in the season than we normally would be at. And, you know, I, I think we're starting to see the team rounding into form and that's a great example of it with the punks. Another guy I want to point out who we have been waiting for, it seems like for three years, but Tyreek Smith was good early. He had a stop in the run game. He knocked Rocky Lombardi out and out of the game with a edge rush combination of Tyreek and then the guys in the middle, Haskell Garrett and Tommy Togiai. I'm not sure they're the best combo that's ever played in the middle at Ohio State, but they're certainly among the most productive. And I will say this, they play with a ton of spirit. You don't usually see defensive tackles with that kind of verve. Talk about what they did. Very impressive. And give another kudos, Zach Harrison didn't seem to be on the field a lot, but when he was, he made a couple of impact plays. Yeah, the Zach Harrison situation for him not being on the field more continues to be the most flummoxing part of this entire season for me with our defense. But it's not really a time for complaining. I just I gotta keep pointing that out that I don't understand why our most talented defensive end is playing as little as he is. Uh, that said, the Tyreek Smith play uh, he was strong early. The sack on Rocky Lombardi I think was actually counterproductive because it brought in the backup for Michigan State who appears to actually know how to throw the football. Um, it's, <laughs> the Frank, it's the Frank kidding. Reich effect. I'm telling you. It's oh, like, dude, that kid came in and like he didn't he didn't shred Ohio State, which was great. But it almost was like it was good that they, that he came in just to get the pass defense a little bit more of a challenge, just to see where they were at. I mean, Rocky Lombardi is not a good quarterback. Doesn't it make you question what goes on in practice when Rocky Lombardi literally looks like, you know, the high school kid who plays middle linebacker and quarterback. And then the kid they brought in, was he nine for nine to get started? Yeah, something like that. And they finished 16 for 25. I mean, and he threw for 147 yards. Lombardi had 33 passing yards whenever he got knocked out. And like 20 of them were on one completion. Like he's bad. (laughs) So like, 
I don't know if the kid just came in and Ohio State was prepared for something different, or maybe the kid was a little less greedy and was actually able to hit the underneath routes, which is what, what he did a lot. I mean, it wasn't like he really forced the ball downfield. I'm not going to say who, who wrote it, but during the game, there was a Bucknut staff member who texted, Rocky Lombardi is worse at passing than Harry Miller is at snapping. <laughs> That's almost unfair to Harry Miller. <laughs> so the reality is, you have a, a, a defensive line, by the way, that knocked out the better, the, the worst of the two quarterbacks. So it made it a little tougher on the pass defense. So that was good. But you're right. with The Samoan connection of the, and the D tackles on the line right now are incredible. And I, I honestly think right now from what we've been able to see around the country, there's a lot of good defensive lines in college football, but there's nobody who has defensive tackles playing at the level Ohio State's are right now. Um, their mobility – just how much of a disruption they are on the inside. This is the best D tackle tandem since Adolphus Washington and Mike Bennett when they won the national championship. Um, this is this is a special group of defensive tackles, and that includes guys like Vincent as well. Um, I, I think Ohio State's defensive line right now is rounding into form. And let's not forget, too, the D line was in particular yesterday was maybe a little extra motivated, knowing that their position coach was the head coach for the game. You could see those guys really wanted it on the D-line all game. And I thought they played a great game. I really did. And by the way, when we're talking about the defense here, I just want to throw one other thing out. Ronnie Hickman looked good. Aggressive. Like, yeah, he was all around the ball. Like, we talked that we made fun of Michigan State wondering how, you know, Thorne wasn't on the field ahead of Rocky Lombardi. Hickman needs to play more. That's my walk away from, from watching the secondary in this game was, Hickman needs to play, and he needs to play a lot more. Ironhead's kid kicked his helmet, and he didn't like that. So classic second guy getting the flag, but we do appreciate the aggression. We're going to take a quick break, come back, and try and put this in some kind of national perspective. Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. Okay, we are back. Backs, oftentimes on the Sunday edition of the BM5, we go through some scores from other games that mattered. There really weren't a ton that mattered yesterday. Texas A&M won, Florida won, Alabama won convincingly. Where do the Buckeyes stand in the grand scheme of things from a national perspective right now? When and they're in the playoff, period. Uh, for all of ABC's bleeding yesterday, uh, that Texas A&M had a good win over Auburn, uh, that, that they really ought to get consideration for the fourth spot, uh, that's idiocy. First of all, Auburn's not good. Like This is the usual SEC selling us on a five-loss team that's supposed to be good, but schedule or something. Second of all, Auburn was beating A&M down the stretch. Third of all, uh, Aggie struggled with LSU last week, and we saw what happened when LSU played a, a real team, and Alabama murdered them yesterday. So Aggie's not part of this discussion, right? The only SEC team outside of the top four right now that has any prayer is Florida, and Florida does not have a prayer of beating Alabama right now. Let's be real blunt. So 
right now Ohio State wins what whoever the heck they play this week, and then they can win the next game, get seven and zero, and they are in full stop. End of the story. That's all we have to really talk about here. They could add another Big Ten foe into the spot. That decision would have to be made by Wednesday at 1 p.m. They could not play the game. I don't believe that will happen. It doesn't feel like there's another team to fit in there, and it just doesn't seem to make much sense to do that. So it means Ohio State will not have the requisite number of games needed to make the Big Ten championship game. However, there does seem to be some growing belief that the conference will alter their goofy-ass rule and let Ohio State into the Big Ten title game against Northwestern with five games. A couple things. One, I'm not asking you to play doctor on TV here or doctor on the pod. Do you think Michigan will be available to play next weekend? And if not, how do you see things going down? Well, I, I think it's it's a it's pretty indicative of everything that we're all sitting here not expecting the game to happen uh, with with our rivals in Ann Arbor. It's very and 2020. It's it's the most 2020 aspect of this season maybe yet. Where we're just like, at the start of the year, the running joke was they weren't going to play us because they had COVID because they didn't want to take a beating. And now here we are, and they, they, have, they have some COVID and they don't want to take a beating. So it's like almost prophetic how this is playing out. And for all the, the people on the Michigan side of things who were so offended that anybody would dare insinuate that they would back down from a challenge, well, this is what their message boards have been begging for for a month and a half. So, uh, in fact, they were the ones who didn't want to have a season because they, they little – you can go on to the Michigan sites back in August and say they don't – and you can read their posters. They say they don't want to have a season because they don't want to lose to Ohio State. And here we are. At the at the at, at, at where the rubber meets the road, right? And they're not going to probably play the game because they have some COVID cases. And now, honestly, I, I think the administrators and Jim Harbaugh want to play this game. I do. For all of Jim Harbaugh's flaws, he's a competitive guy, and I know he wants to play the game. But I also think the kids on his team have checked out on the season. You've watched them play it all this year. They haven't shown any enthusiasm whatsoever. I'm sure they were not exactly being cautious with their exposure this past week and I don't expect them to play. I really don't. And now the, tr- the thing is Kirk Herbstreet's comments that he made this past week about it, them waving the white flag and not playing because of COVID uh, I think puts a lot of pressure on them. They're going to have to be very transparent on their numbers of players, all this other stuff. And if their excuse is, well, we don't think we'd, we'd be able to be competitive because we're missing a lot of guys from you know, position groups or whatever. My response to that is Ohio state was missing four freaking linemen this week. And they still played. They were missing five starters and they still played. Suck it up and come get your beating if you have the kids to do it. Period. But they're not going to. We, I mean, that's just my humble opinion. They're not going to because they don't want any of this smoke. So this leaves Ohio State in a bit of a precarious position. Uh, right now, the only other team in the Big Ten that looks like it's going to be available to have a game is Nebraska, as Minnesota supposedly has a really significant outbreak on their program right now. And they probably aren't going to be able to play this week. However, we've already played Nebraska. And honestly, like, again, this would be the most 2020 thing ever if we had to play somebody twice and it wasn't even in a championship game. I'd feel really bad for Nebraska that their season shapes up this way. But I think there's a solution to this. I think that uh, right now, if Ohio State and Nebraska are the two teams that are untethered in COVID, then I think there's an easy solution. 
You see, Ohio State missed the opportunity to play Maryland this year. I mean, it was Maryland's fault, by the way. So Maryland can't complain about my proposed solution, which is instead of Maryland and Rutgers playing in a game nobody cares about, why don't we have Rutgers go play Nebraska instead and have Maryland come play Ohio State? That'll solve all our problems. And at the end of the day, you don't have a rematch. You get one of the last remaining comp or division games in, and then Ohio State meets that minimum arbitrary, idiotic threshold the Big Ten put out there, not really understanding what was going to go on with this season. That way they don't have people complaining and whining that they changed the rules for just Ohio State, even though that's just what the ACC did to make sure Clemson and Notre Dame ended up playing each other. And then we don't have to worry about any of this flim-flammery going on and anybody trying to act like the Big Ten is in the tank for Ohio State, when if you know anything about the Big Ten, you know that Ohio State doesn't have enough sway in this conference for its relative achievements. So I think that's something that they're going to have to consider is if Michigan can't play, let's rework the schedule to try to get Ohio State and Maryland against each other or Ohio State and Iowa or whatever we have to do to get Ohio State to have another reasonable opponent on the schedule. Because let's face it, Coastal Carolina and BYU put together a game and played two, two days later, and it was the best game of the weekend. You're telling me we can't make some of these alterations? That's absolutely a possibility, and it should be done. Facts. You know they're not going to do that. I know they're not, but still, they should. I don't dispute that, but there's no way Mike Loxley is going to let his team come take a 60-point beatdown uh, and limp <laughs> in here. I, so what do you think is going to happen if you had to predict the next couple weeks? I think they probably are going to end up changing the rule to allow a five-win Ohio State team into the Big Ten Championship. Because that's the other thing. As much as Nebraska wants to play football, Scott Frost doesn't want another beatdown on his conscience from Ohio State. You know, he's got a program that's not in position to really handle things. They can finish positively with that win they had over Purdue. No, That's the problem. Nobody wants to play Ohio State, right? Like, there's nobody here, like, bending over backwards for the opportunity to play Ohio State in the Big Ten. Because Northwestern's got us lined up as the conference title game opponent, assuming they can beat Illinois. Um, and then after that, like, Everybody else in the league either stinks or has already played us. So I would venture that Ohio State is going to get into the Big Ten Championship with 5-0 and as their record. I think the Big Ten will change the rule. Barry Alvarez has already talked about it um, openly, saying, you know, we as athletic directors need to consider that. And the reality is Fox does not want Indiana with their backup quarterback as the Big Ten East representative against Northwestern in the Big Ten Championship. The TV ratings will suck. And it's also it's very simple that we all know Ohio State's the best team in the conference. So there should be understanding of the fact that we're in 2020, this hellscape of a year, and they need to alter that minimum rule to make sure Ohio State gets in because that's the conference's best team. Your best teams are supposed to play for the conference championship. And if Ohio State doesn't get in, this is going to be a championship game like the one they had in 2011 – where Wisconsin got in as the third place team in its division because of NCAA stuff happening in front of them with some other teams. Um, and end of the day, everything was 2012 was that year. Now they went out and they decked Nebraska. They scored 70 on them. But the reality was, is that Ohio state and, and, and uh, Penn state weren't able to get in because of NCAA repercussions. And that was kind of viewed as a cheap championship game. They don't want that. They want to be able to give a, a showcase for the conference that makes the league look good. They want undefeated Ohio State versus one lost Northwestern. That's what they need, frankly. So they're going to change this rule. 
Barry Alvarez usually gets what he wants in this league. And he's already been on TV yesterday talking about how they need to change the rule to make sure that they show that the best of the conference is in. And I expect that to happen. So I expect Ohio State not to play again for another week and a half or two weeks, I guess, at this point, and then play in the Big Ten Championship against Northwestern. Barry Alvarez has come out and said that he is doing that for one reason. When a team makes it to the college football playoff, it is a financial windfall for the conference they are in. The pandemic has kicked everybody's financial status in the nuts. Any chance you get to make some serious cash for the conference, they need to attack that aggressively. And I really do think that's the reason they'll flip the rule because it'll put Ohio State against Northwestern. They will whack them and be on their way to the college football playoff. What do you believe will happen on Tuesday night? Well, I think nothing's going to change in the top four. I think Alabama's the number one team, rightfully so. They've been the best team so far this season. Um, I think Notre Dame and Clemson are going to stay at two and three. And then Ohio State's going to stay at four. I could see Florida being the number five team because A&M's been fairly underwhelming. But I I don't see any changes here at all for any of this. I think the most interesting thing should be see where Coastal Carolina ends up. See if they challenge Cincinnati to be the highest-rated non-Power 5 team. But there's not going to be a lot of shakeup, and there won't be till championship Saturday at this point because I think Alabama has Arkansas. They're going to murder them. Notre Dame and Clemson are already lined up for their showdown. And then Ohio State, I don't know if they're going to play next week. They probably won't based on what we've all been talking about. So the top four aren't going to change. And, you know, the, the biggest question is going to be what the top four looks like after the championship games because you have that Clemson versus Notre Dame factor going on right now. So – well, I guess we'll have to see, but uh, it's gonna it's gonna be real interesting to see how things shake up championship weekend after a very static year. There haven't been any big upsets that have really changed much this year. You know, like we start off with Alabama, Notre Dame, Clemson, and Ohio State, and that's how we essentially have been the entire time. I don't think there's any chance Ohio State drops out of the top four. It is all systems go. We appreciate back stopping by and making time on a Sunday. Have a good one, Bucknutters. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.